turn to Mark chapter 1. That's page 836 on a blue pew Bible if you want to follow along with us there. Um, so one of the good things about being a pastor is that I get to meet with all different kinds of people within the church, right? And we talk a lot about that with our vision. We are Christ-centered, uh, but then in everything else, we want to be as diverse as we can. And I think we're just starting to see more and more of that along uh, with our church body, which is great. Um, and, and we are really all across the map. And what happens is when you have a lot of people that are just all across the map is that it becomes very interesting to meet one-on-one -on -one and talk to uh, this kind of diverse group of people. And so a question that I have found that I like to ask somebody when I'm just getting to know them and, and want to just get to know a little bit about their lives and, and kind of what's going on is I'll just ask them, hey, um, what's your day-to-day -day like? like? Like if I were to shadow you on a Tuesday, where are we going? What are we seeing? Who are we talking to? How are we getting there? What kind of free time do we got? And you're like, what's free time? I haven't seen that since 2004, all right? I don't know. Like, it's just, and, and what's interesting is that people approach that question just very um, differently. Like, some are like, oh, yeah, I can do that in 30 seconds. Like, Monday to Friday, I wake up at this time, I eat the same breakfast, I go to work, same hobbies, bedtime repeat, all right? And it's no problem at all. Um, others are like, they don't even know what to start with that question. Like, they're like, I... I haven't had a same day in 20 years, right? And it's just they're all, I'm here and I'm there. Like, I'm exhausted just listening to what their life is like. And, and, and most of us, I'd say, are probably somewhere in the middle where we can kind of talk in broad strokes. This is what a day looks like for me. This is where we're going. This is what we're seeing. This is who we're talking to. But then even within that, there's all these kind of distinctive um, flavors of, of, of kind of what changes um, a day uh, from week to week. I mean, if you're like me, um, my, my weeks might look the same, but day to day, every kind of day has a different approach to it, right? So that's kind of how I view it. Every day has its kind of own approach. Uh, I'm kind of really type A, like structure and schedules, and I'm in a job that hates structure and schedules. Uh, so I'm just a mess all the time, pretty much, but it, it's just, I find you, you get to know, is somebody spontaneous or are they routine driven? You, you get to find out what's most important to them. It's not like I'm digging in for information. I just, it, you, you, it just kind of comes out when they talk about, hey, what, what's a day look like? What, what do they make time for? What do they have to do? What do they get to do? What do they love most? Well, this morning, Mark is going to cue us in on what does a normal day look like for Jesus? What did his calendar look like? What, what made up his time during his three years of earthly ministry? Where are we going? What are we seeing if we were to shadow Jesus? And um, spoiler alert, it's probably not like anyone's day you've ever seen or heard before. Um, but with that said, Mark chapter 1. We're going to read the entire passage and then dig into it. It's verses 21 to 34. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame 
spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. The passage just before this, if you recall from last week, Jesus had just approached and uh, really called his first four disciples to follow him. Two sets of brothers, Simon and Andrew, James and John, who were fishing at the time in the Sea of Galilee. And he said, follow me. And immediately they left everything they had and followed him. And it was just this kind of profound reminder, I think Mark, the reason why he showed you this scene of these disciples, is that it was a powerful reminder that God's people will never be called to do something by Jesus that he hasn't done himself. Think about it. Jesus asked these men to risk it all for the sake of the kingdom, to even leave their fathers. Jesus, the one who left his father in heaven, whom he had been with for all of eternity for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus will never call you to do something he hasn't done himself. We can be encouraged in that. If you even if you feel like you've come in this morning and you're wrestling with, is God calling me to do something? Should I do it? Should I follow through? Um, maybe the answer is yes. And maybe the answer is yes because he has already done everything he's called you to do as well. But we, they come into the city of Capernaum. It's where our passage starts. And the city of Capernaum is on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the Sea of Galilee, a body of water, it's seven miles long. It's 13, no, seven miles wide, 13 miles long. Uh, just to get a map here, if you hate maps, it's going to be a long series for you. I'm sorry, I'm not sorry. Um, that is Capernaum on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. The Jordan River flows into it and then flows back out of it down towards the Dead Sea. Jesus' hometown is in Nazareth, here in the bottom left. The, the capital of Jerusalem is even further south of that. And I think we have another slide of what Capernaum looks like. These are ancient ruins in present-day Capernaum. Like, that's what Jesus was waking up to, that view, every morning. I don't blame him for using that as a base of operations. But um, it is uh, the Sea of Galilee, obviously, uh, brimming with life and a water source. So there are just villages all around this body of water in the ancient world. And um, they, it was generally thought that about a few thousand people lived there. But the population was, was different because it was very diverse. You, you had Jews, you had um, Gentiles, and then you had a large contingent of the Roman army stationed there. So very diverse population for an ancient culture. And um, this would, again, serve as kind of the base of operations for Jesus and his disciples and we'll see why a little bit later but this is the setting for mark to show us what did jesus do in a typical day what would it be like to shadow him where would you go what would you see who are you talking to and, and as we read this morning mark's going to kind of provide the kind of three layers that he's going to stack on top of one another for this entire gospel jesus did a lot of teaching he did a lot of exorcisms and he did a lot of healings those are kind of general broad strokes that we're going to see again and again. But each scene, e each episode, if you will, also provides this kind of distinctive 
detail that I think will edify us in walking through it. So three buckets we're looking at this morning, teaching, exorcisms, really power, and then healing. So first, his authoritative teaching. Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered into the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Okay, so Jesus wastes no time. Uh, on the first Sabbath in town, he goes and he goes to the local synagogue and begins to teach, right? So the Sabbath is um, a Jewish mandate in the Old Testament that from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, there be no work. No physical work and, and the weekly rhythm of rest where, where the Jews in that city or town would gather at the synagogue. The synagogue was roughly, you could kind of parallel it to the first century Jewish version of a local church. Because there was only one temple which was in Jerusalem, but then there were synagogues established in each village where people gathered weekly. Um, the historians say wherever there was 10 or more Jewish males, a, a synagogue had to be established. And in that place is where the scriptures would be read and taught from, uh, from scrolls. So Jesus enters in. He begins to teach, right, gets a platform. Immediately, people are taken aback. Have you had that when somebody's a, a teacher or, or a talker or a TED Talk or something where you're just like riveted from the moment somebody begins to talk, and they are astonished? Why? All we're told is because he taught as one with authority, not as the scribes. First time Mark uses the word authority in his gospel, but it's going to be a major theme all throughout. That Jesus has an authority that no one has ever seen before. And here's the thing. Mark never gives you any content of what he taught. And right here. He never tells you what he's teaching. He just says he had authority. That word authority is the same root word that we get the word author. And I think that's telling because I think it gives us a glimpse into maybe what he was teaching. Jesus was teaching as if he was the author himself and not merely deriving authority from traditions of, of Jewish culture. You remember in the book of Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount, when Matthew provides some of the teaching of Jesus, what's a phrase that he said on repeat in the Sermon of the Mount? He said, you have heard it said, but I say this. And he goes to the next thing. He goes, you have heard this, but, but I say this. I, I think there's a good chance that is what is happening here in Capernaum. Because people are saying he is claiming an authority that's even higher than the scribes. And that is a massive statement. Scribes were the ones who were trained, the only ones who were trained and skilled in the exposition of the scriptures. And these were the men who had say over the Jewish law in these local villages, both spiritual and civil. Okay, so your scribe was your professor, your rabbi, your lawyer, your judge, and your jury. The buck stopped with them. They had full control. For the most part, they were Pharisees and Sadducees, groups that we'll be introduced to later in the gospel. But for now, Mark just calls them scribes. The ones who had access to the scriptures. And they were all written on scrolls, right? That's the only place you had access to the scripture. Nobody had it on the iPad back at the village, all right? Nobody was, you couldn't get access just in a few seconds. You had to go to the local synagogue this one day week where the scriptures would be read and taught and interpreted to you. And in general, up to this point in Jewish history, 
These scribes had interpretations that had generations and generations worth of traditions that were built up and in many cases changed the meaning of the original scriptures or added on to it. Which is why Jesus is constantly saying, you've heard it said like this, but I say this. He's not uh, giving new meaning to the Old Testament. He's actually reestablishing the original meaning and application of the word. He teaches with authority. A couple things to make note of just before we can move on. Um, What this shows us is that the scribes reveal it's possible to be very smart, very well-spoken, very educated and articulate, and still get it wrong. The wisdom of God dwarfs the wisdom of the world every single time. And the wisdom of the world is often puffed up by a sense of self that blinds itself to the truth of God. It's not wrong to be smart. It's not wrong to be articulate or educated. It just means you can be all those things and still be really wrong. Another thing to note is that something you will never see in the scriptures, something you will never see are people confronting Jesus, hearing from him, um, seeing him, and just respond with indifference. You will never see somebody uh, hear his words or watch what he's doing and just go, hmm, it's kind of weird. All right, let's move on with our day. It just doesn't happen because there's something different about him that you can't just move on without being moved, either love him or hate him. We'll come back to that later, but let's keep going. So we see authoritative teaching. And second, we saw Jesus' authoritative power. Verse 23, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This teaching, it doesn't just stir up the people who are physically there to hear it. It, it. It's like it pokes a hornet's nest in the village. It pokes a hornet's nest throughout the spiritual realm. And immediately, we're told, this demon-possessed man is just there, right? As if Jesus was a food truck in Manhattan that just tweeted out his location, all right? Like all of a sudden, he's just attracted to it, and he's just there. And so the stage is set, right? You got, you got Jesus. You have a demon shows up, and now they're ready to throw down, right? That's what's going to happen. Battle royale. Let's see who ends up on top. No. It's not what you would expect. He comes not to fight Jesus, but to plea with him. This is Mark's theme of irony at its best. The Jews don't recognize Jesus as divine as much as they know about the scriptures. His own disciples, his own followers don't yet recognize Jesus for who he is. But who does? The demons. This demon just passed a theology exam. Right? Jesus is fully man and fully God. That's kind of a tough thing to kind of grasp for many people. But the demon just acknowledged both. The human side by saying Jesus of Nazareth, his hometown. And then the divine side by saying Jesus, the Holy One of God. The demon nails it. And he's here in full force, panic mode. Why? Because Jesus is a threat to their rule on the earth. They have run of the place. Right? Their, their leader, Satan, is the prince of this world. 
but they are in a frenzy. You know why? Because the prince is only the center of attention in a room until the king walks in. And the king just walked in. And now the time is fulfilled and this demon is panicked and he's angry and he just blurts out, have you just come to destroy us? And in a no contest event, the fight was not worth the price of admission. Jesus simply but powerfully says, be silent and get out. And the demon listens because he has no choice. The king walked in. Jesus just says the word and obeys. And that, I mean, that's power. If you think about this, when even your enemy just obeys you like that, like nobody obeys like that. We don't even obey our friends like that. Like, I, I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. I think they love me, okay? I think they see me as a source of authority. There's no chance they obey like that, right? Brindley, our one-year-old, she's now in the phase where she just likes clearing her tray when she's done eating. So she'll just kind of take clumps of food, like put them off the side. I'll be sitting like two feet. I'll be like, Brindley, no, don't drop it. And she's just like cold-blooded, man. Just like looks me in the eye and just goes, like on the floor, like I appreciate that, all right? I, thank you for obeying me like that. Like, we don't even obey the people we like that quickly. And here he is, his enemies just at the sound of his voice obey. That's power. They're not worthy of commendation because they're demons, right? They're, this is happening because Jesus has authoritative power. Again, the king is here. No contest. So I realize some of you may hear this and uh, might be looking around and going, um, okay, what, what, what are we doing here? We're talking about demon exorcisms. Are we supposed to be wowed by that? Is my heart supposed to be stirred by that? Like, can we just be honest? That never happens. Uh, on one hand, I would probably agree with you and say, you know what, I don't think... It is seen very often. I, uh, for one, can say I've never exercised a demon or seen one done. From what I can tell, YouTube isn't filled with them. So it's a fair question. Does this happen anymore? Do demons possess people? Because we don't see it. A few reasons maybe why. Um, one simply might be we just don't look for it. We're a society that always likes to explain and reason things away, so we're not even looking for it. It's possible. Another reason is I think that's convincing is that even in the scriptures, demonic activity, especially uh, possessing people, intensified during the time of Jesus. It's during the Gospels. Really, if you go before the Gospels, barely at all do you see demon possession. After, in the New Testament, very rarely do you see uh, demons possessing people where, uh, where Peter and Paul were having to deal with exorcisms or, or teaching people about them. They surely wrote about spiritual warfare a lot, but they, Paul was never instructing Timothy, okay, here's how you exercise a demon, here's what you do when everybody else is freaked out by that. Uh, like, there's no real instruction on that, and then even in the New Testament. Uh, so it seems to intensify during the Gospels. That's possible. And I think it's definitely true that we hear about it more often in other parts of the world. Um, certainly, if you're familiar with missions, uh, you have heard missionaries, maybe even some of our own, have stories uh, of, of, of exorcisms that they either had to take a part in or, or that they've witnessed. And, and I think in thinking through this, I think that's 
the truth because Satan is smart. In undeveloped regions where there are cultures of animism and uh, just over kind of obsessive spiritualized cultures, the weapon of demon possession will be far more effective for him. But in the West, I want you to think about this. Like a place like America, the weapons of indifference, of materialism, and relativism are far more effective. I think part of the reason we don't see it very often is because Satan does not need demon oppression to turn people away in our culture. In fact, it might backfire on him if he did it too much. Because that would bring more attention to a spiritual realm which people wouldn't want answers and go on a search and figure out why is this happening. It might lead them to Jesus. But in our culture, I think indifference, materialism, relativism are far more effective for him. I say often, Satan might hope you lose it all and try and force you to lose it all and, and just lose your mind so that you would put the blame on God. But far more likely, in America today, he hopes that you have just enough in your life that you remain blind to God. Either way, the point of the story is not to give a guide on how to drive out demons. It's to note Jesus and his authority and his authoritative power. And so now the crowds see this, and they're just amazed, and they say, what is this? Not only does he teach with authority, he commands evil spirits, and they're just gone. Like, what is this? It's the first of several questions we're going to see littered throughout Mark. He's just going to throw them in every so often, of people just watching going, what was that? One of the reasons why he moves so fast in his gospel, why he says immediately over and over again, is that he wants this story to look like a blur. Right? Like something that just dashed across your vision, and you didn't quite catch what it was because it was moving so quickly, and your first reaction was like, what was that? Like that's the mode, that, that's kind of the, the way he wants you to view his thing, where you just bam, 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 and you're just like, what is going on? He's building tension throughout his narrative. Let's move on to the third, Jesus and his authoritative healing. Verse 29, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. The third Thing you often saw in Jesus just day to day, a normal week for him, was physical healing. Uh, amongst other things, the healings in the Gospels make it abundantly clear that while Jesus came primarily to save sinners in the spiritual sense, he's not unconcerned with the physical felt needs of the world. Well, we'll talk more about this in the weeks to come, but Jesus came in the flesh. He had and felt compassion over the things he saw. He saw brokenness and, and, and that he witnessed and, and, and that existed as a result of the fallen world. And, and he felt moved to address physical felt needs wherever he saw them. Did you notice that Jesus spoke to the demons to drive them out? But in order to heal, he physically touched. He touched those with disease. He took Simon's mother-in-law by the hand, looked her in the eye, and healed her with compassion. 
And I don't think our modern minds can even grasp the weight of what it was for Jesus to heal disease. I mean, I think it's a kind of impressive to us, but it is mind-boggling for those in the first century. Because disease, you didn't go get a prescription and knock that thing out in a day. Every disease carried with it the potential of death. Once disease set in, they, they, I'm sure they had some natural remedies. Um, few, if any, were actually effective. It was mostly just up for the body to, to fight itself, or it was lights out. And not only that, but disease spread in these villages. It's almost like thinking in this way for us. It's almost like saying every disease was a cancer diagnosis. Right? When we hear cancer, we never take it lightly. We always know that has the potential to go south. I think that's the way they viewed even a fever. That's why they immediately went to Jesus to say, we need you to heal her. And he walks in and he touches her and she's healed. And she's back up on her feet and in gratitude she begins to serve the one who healed her. And so it's no wonder. It's no wonder the natural fallout of his authority over the demonic realm and disease just put on display made Jesus go viral. Like this whole village was just awakened to like, what is happening here? I don't know, but let's just bring everybody we have to him. And so they're at uh, Simon Peter's house, and they're just trying to bust the doors in. And again, a few thousand people in this village. So anybody who's sick, anyone who's possessed, which I guess there were many, they're just being brought to Jesus, and he's not slamming the door in their faces. He healed many diseases. He casted out many demons. And even after all that, the most interesting aspect of this whole passage to me is the final sentence. The back half of verse 34. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This picture of Jesus not allowing the word to get out we're going to see it all over Mark, eight times actually in just the first eight chapters. He's going to say it to demons. He's going to say it to those he heals. He'll even say it to his own disciples. He'll say, don't let this get out. And over the course of this book, we'll talk about maybe different reasons why. But again, that's not what you would expect. Like I feel like everything in, in, in Mark is me saying, and then this happened, and it's not what you would expect. Right, like you'd think he'd come on and go, all right, let's get the word out. Let's get going. The king is here. Let's go. He does the exact opposite. And so the one aspect of this I just want to finish with this morning is for us just, just to see that Jesus did not come to spread his fame far and wide. He didn't establish his authority in all these different areas and in, in, in healing and power and teaching just to be known. He didn't care just about being known. The demons knew him. It had to be something more than that. And I think he came to establish his authority so it might be clear, crystal clear, that when he goes to the cross, he did so by choice. No one forces the king to do anything. And yet the shocking ending of these Gospels is a king laying down his life, not because he lost his authority, but rather because he used it so powerfully that others may live. 
He did it so that many would believe in him as Savior and obey him as Lord. Believe in him as Savior and obey him as Lord. Listen, the demons knew him, which means it's possible to know a whole lot about Jesus and it not mean anything for you. The demons knew far more than the rest of us. They knew far more than even the best Jesus scholar in the world. But Jesus did not come with the message of, hey, come know who I am. We saw what his message was last week. He said, rather, repent and believe in the gospel. Savior and Lord. Two things the demons would never be able to call him because they knew everything they needed to know. They just hated it or were indifferent about it. But to trust and to obey, Savior and Lord, those are two sides of the same coin. One is the reason for salvation by grace, and the other is the result of salvation. To truly know Jesus is to see him as the light that exposes the darkness in our own hearts, that illuminates the emptiness, and then trust in him in such a way where he's our Savior. And then follow him in such a way where we recognize his authority as Lord. When the father raised Jesus from the dead and he took his place back on the throne, he is ruling and he is reigning. And I just want to say out of love, on that final day, there's going to be no credit given to any of us for just knowing about Jesus. There's no theology exam that's going to be given. There's no Bible sword drill you're going to have to pass. On that day, God will say, well done, good and faithful servant to those who have believed in his son, in his atoning sacrifice for sin, in his victory over death, and in his authority over all things. Can you say that's true of you this morning? That you don't just know about him, but that you trust in him as your savior. And for those who say, yes, he is my savior, yes, and amen, let me ask a second question. Is it evident in your life that he's your Lord? You see, a lie I bought into for a long time was that as long as I believed the right things and knew the right things, right church kid, went through it all, knew it all, that it didn't really matter how I lived. Where I said, yes and amen, Jesus is my Savior. I believe that, but my actions and my thoughts, it became evident mostly to myself, but also to others, that I did not follow him as Lord. I called the shots. I did what was right in my own eyes. And in the church today, I'm not just saying specific grace church, but all around, one of my largest concerns is people who would say Jesus is their Savior, but whose lives expose the fact that Jesus is not their Lord. And today, indifference remains Satan's best weapon, not only amongst unbelievers, but amongst believers in the church to paint over the vibrant colors of Christ and give him a makeover with a stroke of beige. But this passage shows nobody's indifferent to Jesus. Here he is, in all his authoritative vibrancy. And so perhaps this morning, 
there is an area of your life, brother or sister, where God wants you to hand over, to walk away from, to submit to Jesus as the source of authority where we trust that he decides what is good and right for our lives, for his glory and our joy. Maybe it's an area that it's been a struggle for a long time, a habit, an addiction, a relationship, a, a mindset that maybe others know, but far more likely they don't. Maybe even you have long since given up overcoming it. The answer is not you need to go try harder. You've got to wake up tomorrow and just do better. That's not the message. The message of the gospel is fix our eyes on Christ. Repent, seek forgiveness, and trust in him. For it is only when our eyes are on him that we might say, it is well with my soul because it is your works and not mine. And it is only when our eyes are on him that the sight of that temptation begins to go out of focus and weakens. And so my prayer this morning is, church, that we would not just want to know more from God, but that we would trust more in what we already know. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Lord. He needs to be both. And he never calls us to something he hasn't already done himself. It will be hard, but it will be worth it. Because there is real joy, real joy in grace-fueled obedience. Let's pray. Father, give us the eyes to see this morning who you are, what you've done. Lord, as we just stare at the life of Christ and see what a normal day was, Lord, let, us, let our hearts see the authority that he comes with the authority that he laid down by, cho by choice for making disciples, Lord. And I just pray, Father, that, that would ring true in our minds, even as we close this worship service in a song, that it would be a prayer for us, that our eyes get turned up to you, that repentance and forgiveness would follow, and we might say, it is well with my soul. Amen.